Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. And on this episode, we'll be taking a fascinating and moving look behind the headlines. Think about any major disaster in the world over the past 30 years. And our guest, Robert Jensen, was probably on the scene and personally involved for days, months, or even years afterward. Robert is the chairman of the Kenyan International Emergency Services, which provides crisis management response to hundreds of businesses and governments. Robert has spent most of his adult life responding to major disasters like the 9-11 attacks, Hurricane Katrina, the 2010 Haitian earthquake, and the 2004 South Asian tsunami. And he's the author of an absolutely gripping new book called Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead teaches me about caring for the living. Robert, we thank you so much for joining us. We have really been looking forward to talking with you. Oh, you're welcome. And likewise. Tell us more about how you got into this line of work and why you decided to write the book. That's a great question. There wasn't really a plan to to fall into this line of work. Um, I had to pay for college. I went to school in California and Cal State Fresno and was a deputy sheriff. That's how I paid for school. And so I started a little bit in, into the field at that point. And that's when there was just starting to be an interest in forensics, not at all like it was on TV now. And then I went into the Army. It's what I really wanted to do was to be an active duty Army officer. And in the Army, I was eventually assigned to the Quartermaster Corps, which had responsibility for what they call mortuary affairs. And it was about the time that we had our invasion into Haiti and then Oklahoma City and then Bosnia. So I was thrown into some pretty big operations pretty early on, Oklahoma being my my first big mass fatality that I went to. And so it just kind of stuck. It it seemed if there was a problem, somebody said, let's just call Robert. He'd been through this. So when I left the Army in 98, I came to Kenyon, which was just really starting up in the U.S., having been acquired by a U.S. company and and brought over from the U.K. and spent the last, what, 22, 23 years at Kenyon doing kind of the same thing I did in the Army. Writing the book was never a burning desire to memorialize all of this um, because, trust me, you don't want the, the memories I have. But after a couple of articles, um, an agent come to me and say, you know, this would be a great way to share the lessons learned, make sure that this information isn't lost. And I liked that. And I thought that was a great idea. And so the book was born. What have you learned about the meaning of life by helping so many people through the worst days of their lives? Well, and, and I try to actually hit it a couple of places in the book. It, I don't think there's a specific meaning of life. Life is what you make it. And that's maybe the one key lesson. You get one shot and there are going to be some really bad days. Hopefully there's more good days than bad days. And there's a lot you don't control. So don't waste time worrying about stuff you can't control. Instead, focus on the things you can control. And when you do that, I think you might find that you free up a whole lot of time You free up a whole lot of space that maybe you were using to worry about things. Instead, you're better able to deal with the consequences when things happen that you don't want to have happen. How many times have you thought to yourself, I've seen it all, only to find yourself on the scene of yet another disaster 
which you couldn't have prepared yourself for. I'm not sure I've seen it all. I, I hope I have. Um, and I, I would have to say that you, when you prepare yourself, it's not really about me because I, no one forced me to go there. Uh, I was asked to go because I agreed to go. I was a volunteer. And so when I go, my first thoughts are about how sad and how hard it's going to be for the people that are involved. And then my second thoughts are more pragmatic are, okay, what are the logistical challenges? What are the problems that we need to solve? What are the things that we have to do and how do we go about doing them? And that's usually what occupies the, uh, the brain power. Why is it that you ask the coroner what the goal is the second you arrive on the scene? Well, I do that because when you go into a mass fatality, remember the best you can do is zero because you can't make it better. You can't uninjure somebody. You can't bring somebody back from the dead. At least no one I've ever met has been, been able to do that. And so you want to make it as easy as possible for the survivors, the families. And the goal is to be able to have an answer, an explanation, and to return a loved one. Now, when you want to be able to return a loved one, that can have a lot of different meanings for people. Not everyone that matters to, but for most it does. And if you can account for everyone who's missing, now that's very different for a plane crash or, or a accident where you have a manifest or some type of control, then you can stop the process. You don't have to do repeated DNA to identify every bit of human remains that is recovered. So the question for the coroner, the medical examiners, are we looking for people to account for everyone who's missing? Are we trying to account for every bit of human tissue that's recovered? So where you may want to account for every bit of tissue that's recovered, and I apologize if this is is too graphic, is in a thing like German wings, where we know we have a person who's responsible for a death of 149 people commingled with those 149 people. And we don't want to inter the co-pilot's remains or any of part of his remains with those of the victims. So it's really not a question about people or all human tissue. Then it becomes, we're going to do everything we can to identify all the tissue and make sure that those that are victims are separated from the perpetrator. Your book is called Personal Effects, and the cover is incredibly moving. It features eyeglasses and a cell phone with the glass shattered and things like that, things that just really get to the core of someone who looks at them because you you realize, wow, this is sometimes just about all that's left. And these are items that I use every day, glasses and cell phones and and the things that, that are the personal effects that you find in a mass fatality. Tell us more about the role those things play in terms of helping the the survivors, the families cope in the later days and months and years. Yeah, the, the, and, and that was the reason we titled the book, the book "Personal Effects" because of the the value of those those items that people have. And the, um, the photographer, the editor that came up with the cover, I thought did it, you know, hit a home run on the uh, the first try. And of course, those are all. St- stage things are they're nothing from real incidents but the personal effects go back to the earlier part of the conversation about if 
our goal is to be able to return a loved one because, again, the whole thing about a mass fatality is providing answers and allowing a family to make a transition from what was normal to what will be normal. And that transition begins with an acknowledgement. I, I don't always use the word the acceptance, but an awareness that this event has happened and that it's not going to end differently, that as much as we want our loved one to walk through the door, that they're not going to. I'm just curious to know if you found that if there's not a body or DNA found, if people have a hard time accepting that that person is actually gone, like if they actually believe you. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's, that's what I was, and it's a great question because um, I don't always explain it very well. Absolutely. When we, let's uh, go back and focus. When we have a death that's expected, there's a system and the system's at a hospital, a car accident, the family reacts, they work with their funeral director, they have planning. And the planning is that reality, that slap in the face. It says, I, I have to make a decision on what to do with my loved one's body. I have to plan these events. So this must be real. When you take my husband, for example, he's at home and all of a sudden my plane disappears over, over the ocean. And he gets a call and saying the aircraft Robert was on has crashed and there's no survivors. What can he do? He can't plan a funeral because there's no body and there may not be one. And so there's that little bit of doubt that creeps into people's minds that makes acceptance or, or moving to that next step almost impossible or very hard for many people. So when we have the loved one, that forces you to make decisions. And those decisions are based on acknowledging that the event has occurred. And unfortunately, unlike TV, where, you know, with the modern shows, there's a problem solved in an hour or two hours, these events can take years. And sometimes we just don't have a loved one to return because there was the DNA was not successful because of the dynamics of the loss. There just was no recovery. And for these families, it's incredibly difficult for some of them to get onto that step, or I call it a bridge. And think about you're driving down Highway 1 in California every day, and all of a sudden the road opens up in front of you. You slam on your brakes, and you know that your life continues on the other side of this big canyon or chasm that's open. Our job as responders is to build a bridge. And then make you comfortable to get on that bridge and drive across that to your new reality. But there's some things that have to happen to build that bridge and for you to be comfortable. And that's the goal. And so if we don't have a loved one to return, our next option, our next best thing are the personal effects. And even with a loved one, the personal effects are hugely important because the personal effects are reminders. They're the, oh, that watch that. I gave, you know, I gave him. It's very special. I knew he had that watch and he loved it. So now I have to watch. It will always be a reminder. It's kind of if you remember sometimes for grandparents, uh, you know, my grandfather used to smoke a pipe. And so the smell of tobacco is always a pleasant memory for me. Uh, the sights, things that we can touch, tactile things have really powerful effect on, on our bodies and our minds for many people. I know that you must have been involved in, in returning thousands of, of personal effects to people. Are there any stories that come to mind, any memories that you have of those that are 
incredibly powerful that you that that haunt you or that give you some kind of, of feeling of comfort that you've done your job well? Well, I, I think there's there's lots of stories and and um, different ones. There was a Grenfell Tower, which was the fire in the United Kingdom a few years ago. The 71 people sadly lost their life, that tower block in Chelsea and Kensington. And we got a pot of coins that had been um, you know, heavily damaged in a fire, and we were able to clean them up and return them to family members of the deceased. And I said, you know, this was a collection that was always special because our friend, our, our family member would always give his last penny to ever needed it. And now he's given us his last pennies. Uh, there was a symbolism for that family. There's, it goes back to a, coast, a crash that occurred off the West coast of California back in um, 2001, Alaska airlines. And this plane had 88 people on board it. Um, four of which we were not able to recover or identify um, just because of the facts of the loss. And the, the evidence, the, the research shows that, you know, clearly they boarded the flight. One young man, his mom had some challenges. You know, this, this, is this real? There's, there's no remains. You know, with science, there should be remains. I, I should have a grave to go to. And he just wasn't recovered, but we had some of his belongings. And when we went to return the belongings and, and I was able to sit with, with his mom and go through each of the items, because this is all about choices for families. It's about returning the items. And do you, you know, just send them in a box because some people would like that, or do you hand deliver? And so this family would ask for us to personally bring them up there. And we did. And some of the items we weren't sure was his because of the course, you know, when things break up in the ocean, different boats recover things. Um, there were some curlers there. And, and she had said that, um, that you know, the, the curlers were her mother's and that he'd have them in the suitcase. And he certainly would not have lost them because he knew the value to her. And so she looked at me and said, you know, so, so Robert, you're telling me my, my son is is not going to come home. And I said, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, I'd love to be able to tell you that your son would walk through that door. Um, because she had never really started what I call the journey across the bridge. His bedroom had been untouched because she showed it to me. I think his truck was still in the driveway. And I said, no, I, I'd love to be able to tell you that, that I think we're wrong. Your son will walk through the door. But he's not going to because the facts don't support that. And you have to decide now how you respond or what you do. And the best that we could do is return these items. And I I know to you that means your son is not coming home, and I'm sorry for that. So for her, that was, I think, a big change. You've talked to thousands of women like her, and I think a lot of us know people who have had loved ones who have been in tragedies like this. What should we say to them as their friend? Well, yeah, and it's not just, you know, it's obviously parents and it's young people who've lost parents and it's all sorts of relatives. Death is scary. And the first thing to do is listen, listen and acknowledge. Never say, I know how you feel because I'm not them. I don't know how they feel. Everyone feels differently. I don't try to offer false positivity or false hope. I try to listen, say what the facts are, and then help them try to navigate what are going to be the next steps for them. What is it they want to do? 
And for some people, they don't want to do anything right away. They want more time to process. For other people, they want to know it's going to get better. And that's where you can be positive and, and remind them about the good times. Whenever anyone tells me about a loss, I always listen. And then I say, you know, they sound like, God, what an incredible life they had. What amazing things they've done in the world and, and how proud they must be of, of their family that's left behind and how hard it's going to be. Because for those that are gone, there's no more pain. There's no more tears. Do you stay in touch with the families of the deceased disaster victims that you've met? Not by my choice, by their choice. And, and what I mean by that is not because I don't want to. I'm not a reminder of something that was good or bad or something that was good. I'm a reminder of something that was bad or unpleasant. And my job isn't to go in to replace somebody. As you say, hello, you're preparing to say goodbye. Now, I get some really nice emails from family members. You know, they'll see an article or, or something about the book or something on TV or it'll be an anniversary. And they'll send a, a note saying thank you. They'll tell me that, you know, oh, gosh, we got this and how important it is. I I got a separate, or nice email, but sad email after the loss of the Ethiopian flight, the 737 MAX, which we didn't respond to. But I had a family member who'd lost somebody in the, uh, the German wings crash in the Alps who'd been in the family briefs. And I'd had to address the, the issue of fragmentation, which no one had wanted to do. And he afterwards came up to me and said, thank you, because now I, I know what to do. I know what to expect, which is all about this process. And so he'd gone home this couple of years later. Then he sent an email and they said, you know, I just lost my best friend on the Ethiopian crash and it brought back all the memories. And I'm wondering now who's who's going to be briefing those families. Um, so people will reach out once in a while. And um, and there are some I talk to more regularly than not, but but most I don't. How do you avoid emotional numbness or, or distance or even a sense of jadedness after you have met so many different families? Like, how can you keep it in perspective that these are individual lives? Well, it's always important to remember that, that every person has a circle around them. So for every person who's severely injured or lost, there's a circle of family and friends. And then they have a circle and family or friends that are trying to support them. It's kind of the ripple effect. And so each event, doesn't matter if it's 10 people, one person, or a thousand, or a quarter of a million, that's an individual that you're trying to focus on. And so you don't become bureaucratic or, or a corporate type view. Secondly, it's again, not about me or how I feel. I'm there because I agreed to be there to try to help make it easier for them. So if I get jaded or sarcastic, it's not going to be easier for them. It's going to be the system reacting, and that's exactly what we don't want. We don't want them to see this as a system. We want them to see a response made up of other people who've come together to help them as people would want to be helped themselves. When we talk about fires and earthquakes and plane crashes and terrorist attacks, those are all things that we we all would fear. How can we prepare ourselves 
to not be victims of those kinds of disasters? I mean, you must have learned over the years that there are certain things that that people maybe could have done to escape. Uh, Obviously, in a lot of cases, they can't. But what would you tell us that are some safety things that we can use to prevent becoming a, a victim of something like this? Well, there's a couple of things, and you have to break it down into boxes. So think preparation. Not a lot you can do to prepare yourself if you're in an aircraft accident. But fires are a great example. Um, When you walk into a movie theater or a concert hall, do you see where all the exits are? Sadly, I've, I've had fires where people have died because they passed a perfectly good exit because it wasn't the exit or entrance they came into. So they immediately went to the one entrance that they had come in, passing several good exits. In a hotel, it's a pain. But if you go into a hotel, you count the number of doors from your room to the stairs. I was a fireman. And so if you've ever been in a building that's filled with smoke, you can't see zero visibility, but you can feel. So you prepare yourself because that helps you mentally. It also reminds you that, wow, I I can control how I respond and how I react. You know, California has the fire safe initiative about making sure things that are close to, for those that live in the woods are, you know, there's a space between their house and and the woods and, and areas that can catch fire. Do I have things digitized? Do I have documents saved in the cloud so that if something happens, I'm not worried about collecting those when I should be focused on how do I do a safe egress? And then when I have an event, have I practiced enough visualization? Have I been through enough situations in life where I know to stay calm? And a lot of people fail to react quickly. They don't believe it's happening. Governments do it all the time. We see it in the tsunami. We saw it in a lot of disasters where the government just said, wow, this can't be happening this way. And of course it does. And so it happens quickly. So you have to react. And then focusing on what have I done before to make post-incident easier? And what I write about in the book is we live in Key West. Well, there's hurricanes here. We can't prevent hurricanes. We'll get a couple days warning. Hurricanes are going to occur. So if it's not within our stress or tolerance level to have to deal with them, then we shouldn't live here. Now we know they're going to come. So do we have a generator? Do we have sandbags that we can block a door? What plans do we make so that if it does occur, it's much easier to recover? Because we focus a lot in America on preparation, and we don't focus on what I call consequence management. And that's where people get hurt. It's managing the effects of the disaster that we couldn't prevent. Even though you haven't been in a plane crash, I imagine that you get a lot of questions from family members asking if that person would have been conscious or fearful during that time. How do you answer them? Well, we always get questions like that. Again, where people have done some damage is because they give an answer they think they would want instead of the truth. The first thing I I do when a question is asked, and most people don't say conscious, most people say, were they alive? And so I have to ask them, what do they mean by alive? Because there's a difference between being alive and being aware. And a lot of events where there's actual life, there's not awareness because of the amount of G-force, uh, depressurization, things like that. So if we, we know in some losses that there's been several minutes of trying to, you know, 
fix-it plane. We know where planes were flown inverted for seconds while pilot tries to get control. Well, people are certainly going to be aware of problems. So, yes, they would have been aware. But where the plane starts to have a rapid descent, amount of G-forces, you're not going to have consciousness typically at a point of impact or you won't have awareness. And that's why I really support families being able to listen to the cockpit voice recorders. And that's a big controversy for you know pilots unions and different safety boards around the world. But it, again, allows a family to understand, just like I support bringing a family to the site. We always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? And you must have a thousand of them. I mean, but what is it? What comes to mind when I say, what is it that nobody told you about your line of work, dealing with disasters, dealing with families, dealing with your own emotions in the aftermath that you had to learn the hard way that you would maybe like to pass on to somebody else? Well, there's lots of lessons I try to pass on. And I'm not sure there nobody told me because I'm not sure I knew what to ask. Um, I, I guess the, the, the lesson, there's the practice, and I've really always thought about that question more in a technical mean for practitioners. So an answer to kind of think about this, really not a practitioner answer, but a personal level is, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of it because I, I think I was pretty aware of things. And since if I wasn't, it wasn't something I could control. It wasn't something I'd worry about. Um, so I, I'm not sure I can answer that. Well, you have answered so much for us, and, and we, we just so many more questions we could ask you. We'd love to talk to you another time. Yeah, and we, we just applaud your work and the tenderness and the heart with which you approach it. Uh, well, thank you. And I'm certainly, um, I, you guys are fun to talk to, and there's a <laughs> California connection. So um, I'm always happy to do follow-up interviews if you'd like, or do a, even a, a, I don't know if you guys do live where listeners can call in or pre-recorded where people can call in. I'm pretty open to taking questions. Well, we would love to talk with you again. Well, great. Again, our thanks to Robert Jensen. His new book is called Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead teaches me about caring for the living. And his website is Robert A. Jensen, and that's Jensen spelled J-E-N-S-E-N.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) 